Good morning. It is my great joy um, to be in front of you again, and uh, it's great to see all of you here. Um, welcome if you're visiting, and welcome back if you're a regular attender. For your own personal benefit and joy, I would ask that you would open up to Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. Luke 10, 38 to 42. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's pew Bibles in front of you, or maybe your neighbor is kind enough to share with you as we read. Um, if you're new to navigating the Bible today, um, the book is in the top corner of your Bible. The chapters are the big numbers, and the verses are the small ones. We are in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And I would ask that you're, if you're able, um, that you would stand in reading of God's word today. Luke, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, pens these words. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many Things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You may be seated. And would you pray with me? Our Father, Jesus said that this is eternal life that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, I pray that today, we pray together, that through your word being preached, that our faith is strengthened, that we might know you, that we might know your Son, Jesus Christ, more and more intimately by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. For any of you that don't know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, northern Maryland, right where Maryland starts to thin out into the panhandle. And I love that area partially because it's my home and it's where I grew up and all the people I love are there, but also because all my grandparents, my great-grandparents, everybody grew up in that area or in the hour radius around that um, area of Maryland and Pennsylvania. And because my parents went to school there, uh, they know a lot of people that still live there. A lot of people did as we did. Maybe you guys are used to this around here, that a lot of families just kind of stick around for generations, and a lot of uh, high school friends, whether it's elementary school or middle school or college friends, are still around that area. And so naturally, uh, in the grocery store, I would have a lot of hour-long conversations I get drug into, and um, they would sit there in the aisle nine for an hour and a half, talking about high school and what's, what's new in their lives. Um, but it's very interesting. A lot of those times, a lot of people would look at me or my brothers and say, oh, man, they look like a Reese. Or he really looks like Mike, uh, my dad. And 
after, you know, we hit puberty, we even start sounding similar over the phone. Oh, you sound like Mike over the phone. And this is not an uncommon experience, I'm sure, for many of you. I'm being completely honest, I met Jeremy and Gretchen once, and then I saw Thomas in a different room, and I was like, I bet he's a heater. I bet he's their son. <laughs> um, but we all do this, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, because children can be identified by the given characteristics that their parents have, that they have passed down to them. And we even see this with not necessarily biological children, but also people that follow people very closely. A preacher might make a lot of the same gestures or say a lot of the same things or explain things in the same way that the preacher that he watches most often or the person that disciples him says. Uh, Kids that grow up watching their favorite basketball player uh, might play or model their game after them. Those who are children of a given person, whether biologically or because they follow them closely, look like and sound like the person they are following. It is not surprising, then, that in Scripture... We see the same thing is true of Jesus' followers and his children. Actually, the life of of a disciple of Jesus Christ is actually supposed to be modeled after looking like Christ, the progressive changing into Christ's likeness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree into the same image image from one degree of glory to another. And Romans 8.29 famously says, Those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. These verses, therefore, do not only describe our destination, but what our lives are to look like even today. Simply put, disciples of Jesus Christ act like it and look like it. But the question begs to be asked, what are some of the specific characteristics of true disciples of Jesus Christ? What does true discipleship look like, and what does it entail? Well, today we're starting a series on this topic exactly entitled True Discipleship, where we will walk through a key section of the Gospel of Luke that describes what true discipleship looks like and includes. And the first part of this section is seen in our passage in Luke 10, 38-42, and it extends to the end of chapter 11. And as we will see, this short narrative communicates this main idea. And so this is probably the most important thing I'll say today, and so make sure you write this down. The main idea for today's passage is this. True disciples of Jesus Christ forsake the cares of this world to prize and prioritize sitting at at Jesus' feet and listening to his teaching daily. A little long, but true disciples of Jesus Christ forsake the cares of this world to prize and prioritize sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his teaching daily. The main structure of the text that we will be uh, following and that this um, main idea comes from is split up into three main points. A critical context in 38a, a characteristic question in 40 to 42, and a crucial comment in 41 to 42. A little bit of overlap. And so... Without further ado, we will get on to our first point, the critical context. And this happens right at the beginning of our section in 38a. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus. And we'll stop there. Very interesting way to stop, but we'll stop there. And this beginning phrase here actually acts as a narrative marker in the book of Luke. It is important to recognize first that we are not in an epistle. We are not in a letter. We're in a gospel. We're in a narrative book which is mostly narrative, with some discourse and poetry. 
So we're not only going to cover more verses at a time in these sections, but we also need to allow the narrative to teach us what it is trying to say by following the story along. But in order to do this, in like in a book or all other books, we need to know the general context of the book of Luke. So the story here in Luke 10 exists as a narrative unit in and of itself within a larger narrative unit that still exists and with a larger narrative unit that exists in the book of Luke. So it's very, very complex and layered. So first, in the entire narrative of Luke, uh, it is unified by the message of salvation for both Jew and Gentile alike with a constant movement toward Jerusalem. That's the entire book of Luke. The book starts not with the baby or even Jesus or the mother of Jesus, Mary, but with a priest, Zechariah, serving in the temple in Jerusalem. The the temptation narrative is changed from Matthew's uh, narrative to make the Temple Mount temptation the final one because it's in Jerusalem, showing the progression towards Jerusalem even within that narrative. In the final words of the book, in verses 52 and 53, uh, Zach just preached on this the other week, uh, chapter 24, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So the whole book is this constant move towards Jerusalem. And in doing so, Luke is saying that the Messiah who comes is not coming to restore just ethnic Israel and reestablish the temple and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, but rather the presence of God and the person of the Son journeys all the way to Jerusalem to make the Old Covenant obsolete, to offer up his body as the perfect sacrifice, to tear open the curtain in the temple and to offer to make a nation of priests, both Jew and Gentile alike to establish that the people of God in the kingdom of God is much larger than just this city. It is worldwide. Jerusalem and the temple, what was supposed to be in the Old Testament, the crossroads of the world where all people would come in and the people of God would be drawing in people from all over the world, actually becomes a launching pad that explodes the mission of Christ all over the world to send out disciples. So that's all of Luke. But within this narrative... We have a unique section of Luke that actually has a lot of, in all the Gospels, Luke has a lot of unique sections that are only uh, unique to him in Luke 9.51 to 19.27, which is appropriately called the journey to Jerusalem, actually, by most commentators. It starts with Jesus, quote, setting his face to go to Jerusalem in 9.51, making a turning point in the book that really directs the book toward what Christ will accomplish in Jerusalem on the cross and therefore draws attention to what occurs in each step of the way in these chapters. Some call this section discipleship on the way, as he focuses a lot on teaching his disciples very closely about what life will look like after he is gone, about what they are supposed to be doing. Throughout this section, though, there are subsections marked by topic, but also marked by the phrase we have at the beginning of our section today, now as they went on their way. That shows up over and over and over again, some form of that phrase throughout this section. So the narrative of all of Luke is focused on this unified message of salvation through Christ for both Jew and Gentile alike. Throughout his movement to Jerusalem, though, is then emphasized here in 9-19, 9-19, And then we zoom in even more on the next narrative section, which is in 957 to 1321, which is actually focused a little bit more on specifically discipleship of the disciples, of Jesus' followers. 
And you look at verse 57 of chapter 9, it says, as they were going along the road. We see this, this marker here showing us that it starts this new section. He sends out the 72, showing that true disciples are to preach the message and be, are sent ones to preach the message of the gospel to all people. He then teaches through the parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan that true disciples love and show mercy to their neighbor. He also shows in chapter 9 that you have to be willing to give up everything to follow Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. And then Luke tells us with this phrase, hey, we're starting a new subsection of this section. Now, as they went on their way, he's getting your attention. He's saying, hey, we're starting a new section in Luke 10, 38 to 42, with this interesting story about Martha and Mary. So this context fundamentally affects how we read this passage. This passage is not just some sort of random story about Jesus' side quest to Martha and Mary's house where he gets a drink, but rather it's to be read and to be applied through the lens of the book in the context of discipleship, about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So it tells us what it is, but it also tells us what it is not. So this story is not, as I've heard it preached sometimes, it's a focus on the different kinds of women uh, a girl can be. It's way too narrow. It excludes the wider context of who this is being uh, meant to communicate to. Also, men, it's not just something that it's the type of woman you should marry. You should marry a Mary and not a Martha. Like, I don't think that's the, that is not the, what the context suggests. Instead, Luke uses this narrative to show two types of people through these two women, two types of ideals or two types of, of general people, to cause the reader to reflect and evaluate where their heart is. It is more than about simple identification with one of the women, though, but it is a grid through which one examines their life. It's at its core, this passage at its core, is teaching about the value shift that must take place in one's heart in order to be a disciple of Christ. They must value Christ above all things, even all of their responsibilities and the other things they are busy with, which fleshes itself out uh, through that person being a student of Christ's person and teachings in his word. So through the use of narrative, Luke is able to do more than just tell his readers uh, what disciples of Christ are supposed to be like, but he tells them that disciples of Christ are wholeheartedly to sitting at his feet specifically. He actually brings the reader into the story through the narrative so that they see the event unfold through the character's eyes. They identify with these characters as it goes along. It is one thing to be told to do something like Paul does in the epistles, but it's another thing to live it out with the story in real time. That's the beauty of the Gospels. So the critical context gives us this direction and the, the proper lens through which we view this passage. We are talking about true disciples of Jesus Christ in and through a sequence of narratives which exists in and through another sequence of narratives in the book of Luke. This leads us to our second point, the characteristic question in verses 40 to 42. He says, Luke says this, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So what is the importance of the question in verse 40? And I ask that question because of its location in the passage, in the structure of the passage, and also just in general. There's five verses in this passage, and it's verse 40, meaning it's the 
middle verse. It's the direct middle. But also structurally, we have something of a chiasm, which is when the different lines parallel all the way up to a center point where it doesn't have them parallel anymore. So we see these two, 39 and 42, paralleling. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. And that, is, that tells us what that is in verse 42. It's the one thing that's necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Similarly, the next lines, we have Martha was distracted with much serving. That's parallel with Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things. It's describing, kind of parsing out for us what distracted with much serving looks like. And then it culminates in this middle verse, drawing attention to this verse in this question. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So why is that there? Why is Luke doing this? That is my question I have to ask as I look at this. In, in reality, it's, it's, it emphasizes this central idea at the center of the passage. And he says, as mentioned earlier, Luke uses narrative here instead of discourse to place the reader in the story and see it through the lens of the character. So when we see this question, we don't just read it and move on. We actually get pulled in, and it's like we are the ones asking this question of Christ. In order to show that disciples are truly devoted to the Word, he has to first try to take apart some of your inward inhibitions or your inward heart by asking this question through Martha. So whenever people ask sometimes when this passage, are you a Mary or a Martha? The answer is actually always Martha, according to Luke. It's always Martha. We are all Martha. The question is central because it contains and reveals the true sinful human heart. And Luke understands that it is first necessary to show the reader their heart first before he can lead them to what they're supposed to be at. We first have to learn to forsake the cares of the world and the sins of our own heart and to deny ourselves and value Christ above all things. And this is how Luke teaches us this in the question with Martha. And in this question with Martha, we see two things. We see the human heart and we see the Savior's heart in the response. So first we see the human heart. Three main things we see in this question that tell us, that identify for us as we ask it, that should arise in our heart as we talk about this verse, as we read this verse. And first of them is forgetful. We are utterly forgetful of first the Lord's character. First, we're, we're very forgetful of the Lord's character, which is seen in Martha saying, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care? And Lord here is not just referring to Master as if Martha doesn't know who Jesus is. Lord, actually, each time we see it in the New Testament, its referent is to the Old Testament Yahweh. It is, it is, she is identifying him as the God of the universe, the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. She, she knows who Jesus is. And we see this all over the Old Testament, that, um, that he is Yahweh. He is the covenant-keeping Lord. But what is she forgetful of? She says, Lord, do you not care? She for, is forgetful of his caring character. And in Psalm 23, we see that the Lord is caring. He is our he is our shepherd that provides for us spiritually and physically. In Psalm 81, what, what Brian preached on Wednesday night, the Lord loves to provide for his people. He says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. 
But perhaps the best passage to turn to in order to see the caring character of the Lord that Martha is forgetting is Exodus 34.6, the most foundational verse for our doctrine of God in the Old Testament. And actually the whole Bible. Everything we know about God is based off of this verse foundationally, and it's repeated over and over and over again throughout the entire scriptures. And it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God angry and ready to kill you over your sin? No. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is a caring God. The Lord is a God that truly cares, for he is merciful, he is gracious, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it does us serious detriment, as it does Martha here, to forget that very fact, to forget about the character of the Lord. And whenever we are up to our necks in responsibilities and busyness and all of our and all of our things that we have to worry about, we forget that God truly cares for us in the midst of that. True disciples need to watch themselves lest they forget the character of God, which causes us to pull back from going to Him in His Word and sitting at His feet. Second, we are self centered. Self centered. We need to watch for self-centeredness in our hearts, which is seen in Martha asking the question, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her then to help me. Martha is even prideful enough to command the Lord to do something. Tell her to help me. Do my bidding. I want to come out and say this first. I'm not saying that serving people is selfish. I, I think that we all should be hospitable. The Bible teaches that over and over again. We should serve others, yes. But remember, this passage is focused on the disciple's heart and what it values. So we can become so caught up in service and busy about serving that it becomes more about ourselves than it does about the other person. And Luke is telling us that the surefire way to know when we are being prideful and selfish in that way is that when our acts of service become more important than sitting at the feet of Jesus. If you're more concerned about what your house looks like than reading your Bible and growing Christ-likeness, that means you are more self-centered about your service to others. Nothing on this planet is more valuable than sitting at the feet of Jesus. Not your service, not the good things you do, nothing. A life without sitting at Jesus' feet, without being saturated in the Word of God, is a life that is bound to be self-centered. Pride destroys our motivation to go to the Word. So it's cyclical. We are prideful, we're self-centered, and now we don't go to the Word, which makes us more prideful and self-centered. If we value ourselves and our preferences and what we want to get done, then we will find that we will never be in our Bible, ever. So we need to watch in our hearts for the self-centeredness that keeps us from going to the Word and sitting at Jesus' feet. And third and finally, misplaced priorities, which is very, very close to self-centered. And we saw some of this in the last point on pride, but it's actually, we see most of this in the verse in Jesus' response. He says, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. So he, he infers that saying, but one thing is necessary, that the reason that she's so anxious and troubled about these many things is because she views them as such a necessity in her life. They are so necessary. A huge obstacle to us sitting at Jesus' feet 
It's when our human hearts become anxious and troubled and distracted or upset about so many things. Because why? Because we see them as necessary. We must have that thing or do this thing. And if we are truly honest with ourselves, the reason we just can't seem to fit the Bible into our days and get time to read our Bibles, to commune with Him in His Word, to take time to pray, it is not because there are not enough hours in the day. But it is because we think that those responsibilities that we are shirking the responsibility of reading our Bibles for are more necessary than reading God's Word. That's truly what it is. Now, we are going to get into the necessity of sitting at Jesus' feet later. But ask yourself now, what in your life do you prioritize and prize over God's Word? What do you say, oh, well, I have to go do this rather than reading God's Word? What prevents you from reading your Bible each day? Whatever it is, is that thing more, imper- more important than Christ? Is that person more important than Christ? Is that thing or that person eternal? Is it eternally valuable? Does that thing deserve to be prioritized or prized over our Lord Jesus Christ? Kevin DeYoung, in his book called Crazy Busy, which I suggest to all of you because it's a great book for people that are busy, he says on this verse, Martha isn't doing anything bad, necessarily. She's just pulled away from what is better. She's so busy with dinner that she's giving Jesus her spiritual leftovers. So once again, maybe what it is that distracts you or keeps you from reading your Bible are real responsibilities like work, like having kids, or your marriage, or other things that you're involved in, but they are also pulling you away from what is even more wonderful than those things. I don't care how wonderful your job is or how wonderful your kids are or if you're even ready to admit that your kids are wonderful. But Jesus Christ is eternally and infinitely more wonderful than that. The heart of man is notorious for overvaluing things of earth and undervaluing God in his word. Watch yourselves that you do not forget his character, that you are not self-centered, and that you do not prioritize the wrong things. So examine your heart this week and read this question by Martha over and over again and see that you are the one that asked this question. Lord, do you even care that I have this stuff going on? And it will bite at you, I'm telling you. If you read it enough, it will bite at you. Because I see myself in that question. And I'm asking, do you? Do you see yourself in this question? And in the response, we also see the Savior's heart. The Savior's heart. And so the great news is that we not only see our sinful human hearts, but we see the Savior's response to us in that situation. And how perfect it is that this response is here, because as we are so beaten and torn up from this question, from examining it, we actually get some of the gospel and some of our Savior's heart towards us. And there's three things that we see. He is first compassionate. Second, he makes an assessment. And third, he corrects and redirects. So first, he's compassionate. And as seen in the immediate response to Martha, he says her name twice, Martha, Martha. And this does not uh, include some sort, of, some sort of veracity or meanness or anger. But we have every reason to believe that he is tenderness. And honestly, if you just read the text, it just sounds tender. You can almost hear it when you read it. Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things. 
He is so tender and compassionate in response to such an insulting and sinful question that Martha asked him. And she tells him what to do. She, she calls him Lord, but she turns around and commands him. And he's still yet so compassionate whenever he had every right to not be. When you are anxious and stressed and you feel like you're neck deep in responsibilities and busyness once again, and you neglect them, know this, that you can come back and experience his loving compassion. He is gentle and he is lowly in heart. When you have traipsed off into perfectionism and self-centeredness, prioritizing all other things over him, you can repent and come back to him and you will not receive justice and, and wrath, but you will receive divine compassion because of what Christ has taken for us on the cross. It is who he is in his very being. His heart draws near to his own even when they're farthest from him. Don't be afraid to put down whatever task you are so enthralled in and turn to Christ and his compassionate embrace. And second, it's not really in his heart, but it's an action that outflows from his heart. He assesses the situation. Know that when you come to Christ and he's compassionate, that he assesses what your sin is. He reveals your own sin to you and teaches you how you might turn. And this point is really short because teaching you how to turn is what he does next, correction and redirection. And that's the third thing we see. He shows compassion, he assesses her situation, he tells her her sin, and he corrects her and redirects her to the good portion. He points her to himself. The truth is is that we will never be able to overcome our prideful, self-centered busyness unless we first turn to Christ and his gospel and allow it to transform our hearts and to desire him even more. If you struggle with this, and I, I, I do, if you struggle with neglecting the word when life is at its busiest, and you cannot figure out what to do to turn the tide in your own heart, this is what you should do. Go to Christ, and he will show you compassion, and he will correct your heart and his love, and he will show you where to go, and he will direct you to himself. He will change and transform your heart by his grace and show you how to overcome your busy life. And it's by resting in him. And you will finally, finally, be at peace amongst all of your craziness and busy life. So go to him. Finally, we have our third and final point, which is the crucial comment. And this is, once again, just Jesus' response to Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious to trouble about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And what we see in this statement is really the reasons Jesus gives for why we as true disciples, people like Martha even, who get caught up in the busyness of life and neglect the word, need to be sitting at his feet every day. And his reasons are fourfold. So I'm sorry for all the lists today, but I hope it helps. Fourfold. The one necessity, a choice, the good portion, and promised hope. And so first, the good portion is the one necessity 
It is the one thing in all of this world, in all of human existence, in all of the universe that is necessary. I do not care, and actually, I'm not going to say I do not care. God does not care what you might think about all of your responsibilities and how necessary they are. But he says one thing above all is necessary, and that is sitting at Jesus' feet, choosing the good portion. And why is it necessary? Well, it's necessary in three main ways. First, it's necessary for salvation. And we see this in 2 Timothy 3.15, which says, You have been acquainted with the sacred writings or scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Or James 1.18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Or three verses later in James 1.21, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word of God is wholly necessary for every one of our salvation. If it was necessary to save you, then it's also necessary for you to continue to study it and devote your life in thankfulness and gratitude for what Christ has done to it. To be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, then, you must be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, on the basis of Scripture alone. It is necessary for our salvation. Second, it's also necessary for our faithfulness. In John 17, 17, Christ says, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. It is necessary for our sanctification. In Acts 20, 32, I think it's Pastor Zach's favorite verse, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are ever growing into his likeness and the avenue of that sanctification comes through the Word of God, by His Spirit in the Son. We need to study it to look more like Christ as true disciples of Him. The Word is necessary for our faithfulness and sanctification. So it's necessary for our salvation, necessary for our sanctification, and third, and the big hitter, is it's necessary for escaping condemnation, which is, sounds like a synonym to salvation, but it's the, the negative end of it. The reader of Luke is reading Jesus' words in chapter 10, once again, in a context, in a book. And he reads them in light of chapter 8, verse 14. And many of your Bibles might actually have this verse cross-referenced. In Luke 8, 14, it says, And as for what fell among the thorns, so this is the explanation of the parable of the seed. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But then get this. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. Being distracted and anxious and troubled by many things and by our many cares in life is a much more serious issue than we put off. And, the re- and Luke knows that, and that's how he arranges his book. We need the Word of God for our salvation for our escape of condemnation, and for our perseverance. We need the Word. We need it more than TV. We need it more than our jobs, more than anyone else, and more than anything else in our lives. And so while I'm not saying that if you spend time with your kids, you're going to, like, endanger yourself spiritually, no. But it's, it's the heart intent. What do you value more than Christ? It's asking you, if you continue down that road of just saying, well, it's not as valuable, I'm fine, I can just keep on doing this, 
And then all of your life is going to be characterized by that. Every single thing is going to become more important, more necessary than God's word. And Luke 8 says, you're distracted with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. I consider it pleasurable to be with my brothers and with my wife and with all of you. But no matter how pleasurable that is, it is not even an ounce of the pleasure that is with Christ, that is in eternity with Christ. And we need to understand and see that. Yes, Christ wants you to spend time with your family. He wants you to work a job and make a living and steward your family and your, and your things well. And you should have fun and enjoy all the things that he has given you, as Ecclesiastes says. But as soon as any of those things take the place of Christ or distract you from treasuring Christ above all, then something needs to change. The right arm needs to be cut off. The eye needs to be plucked out. Because the road of distraction with cares of the world and the pleasures of life only leads to eternal destruction, according to Luke. Christ is unapologetic about this, by the way. In chapter 9, verse 15 to, uh, 57 to 62, if you would turn back there with me, he continues the same theme. He says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds, have the, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. I care about my family. And Jesus said to him, Love the, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And he gets a little bit more direct. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home because I care about my family. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Nothing is more important than Christ and his kingdom. The only necessary thing is sitting at Jesus' feet. Sitting at Jesus' feet is a necessity lest we fail to treasure Christ, lest we become unfaithful, and lest we lose our reward. So, not only is the good portion a necessity, but it's also a choice. It says, Mary has chosen the good portion. And so, in, in our daily lives, we have to make a disciplined decision daily to do this. It's not going to happen by magic by all of a sudden waking up one day and being like, oh, I'm going to prioritize God's word every single day from here on out. It's a daily discipline, a decision that we make each day to beat a path to the word each and every single day and hour of the day. It is going to take discipline and time, but it is the best thing you can possibly do. So I encourage you to do it, to sit at Jesus' feet, because it is a choice by you to do, the, to do so. So it's a necessity, it's a choice, and it's also, the good portion is the good portion. And you're like, obviously, Captain Obvious. But it's the good portion. It's the good meal. It's the perfect meal that satisfies. And this has many references to the Old Testament, which is very famous in Luke, <laughs> to refer to the Old Testament in many ways. To say that the Lord is our good portion. While there are many other things that are good things, there is nothing quite as good as a good portion that is sitting at Jesus' feet. If we are going to get anywhere in devotion to the Word of God, if we are going to experience change in our priorities, 
then we must first believe truly in our hearts that Jesus is the good portion, that he is better than anything we have. We have to believe that. And this reflects some of the Psalms um, that say that the Lord and his word are the good portion. In Psalm 16:5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Psalm 17, 14 and 15, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, their portions in this life, men of the world are, you fill their womb with treasure, and they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. But as for me, his portion, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And these verses are truly like line Psalm 17, 14, 15 up with this. And that's exactly the message. He forsakes the things of this world. He calls the men of the world that, that he fills their, their wombs with children and, and and infants and their abundance on this earth. But he says, as for me, and he turns to Christ, he says, I shall behold your face in righteousness when I awake. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That's the value shift that Luke 10 is getting at. He sees the Lord as the true good portion. So true disciples sit at Jesus' feet daily and forsake the cares of the world because it is our good portion. And as Psalm 19 says, like we read this morning, God's word, it revives the soul. It endures forever. It enlightens the eyes. It's righteous altogether. It's more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. And what thing or what person in the world is quite like that? What meal is quite like that? And how can we, in light of that, be too busy for that? Something that revives our soul something that endures forever. And that's actually where we're going next. Finally, the good portion is a promised hope. It's a promised hope. It gives a promised hope. Jesus says that this good portion will not be taken away from her. Not now, Martha, to go serve you and to help you in the kitchen. And not ever. For all eternity. It is eternal we go to the word of God each day, we are partaking of something. We are receiving a good portion that satisfies us not just for a day, but forever, for eternity. We are receiving something that will never be taken away from us. Psalm 73, 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. As an illustration, I love high school sports. I loved high school sports. I think that every child that wants to, should play a sport in high school. It's awesome. Um, it's a good thing to get involved in. You get exercise. It's fun. It's enjoyable. You make lasting memories, and you can learn actually a lot of good lessons from it. However, in light of what we learned today, we should approach things like sports with the right perspective. They are not the good portion. <laughs> they are not necessary. They're not something we should choose over God's word. Because I remember my last high school basketball game, my last high school soccer game, my last high school baseball game, kind of sitting there and being like, wow, that's it. Like, that's it. That's the last organized game of 
basketball or whatever I played, probably, most likely. And I was saddened by the fact that I wouldn't be able to be a high school athlete anymore. It didn't last forever. And that small bit of emptiness is a small picture of what everything on this earth does for us. It seems great, it's enjoyable, it teaches us good lessons for a time. But at the end of the day, we're going to be, oh, that's it. That's it. It's the same feeling that we get at funerals when we see our loved ones pass away. Oh, that's, that's it. They had cares and dreams and desires and things that they loved to do, but those things were not the things that, last, that lasted forever. Only Christ lasts forever. Only the good portion that we receive will not be taken away from us. Why would we put all of our time in the things that are not necessary? That are not ultimately the good portion and that don't provide the everlasting promised hope that the Word gives us. The good portion, sitting at Jesus' feet, gives us an eternal promised hope because it will never be taken away. So go to your Bible each day holding on to that promise. If nothing else, go to it and say, this is the good portion. It will never be taken away from me. If that isn't motivation to read your Bible, I don't know what is. We, as true disciples of Jesus Christ, need to examine our lives and look for sin that besets us and that hides in our busyness like forgetfulness and pride and misplacing our priorities. And we need to turn to the compassionate Savior who will point you to what you need. The good portion that is only, the only necessary thing that will never be taken away from you. So I have a few points of application before we leave. And the first point is, what is your good portion? Is it Christ or is it something else? What in your life do you view as that good portion? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your friends? Is it the way that other people view you? Is it your car? at your job? Consider that question for a really, really long time. What do you give all your time to? What do you view as something that is your savior, that gives you purpose and meaning and you think will last forever? And then in light of that, the second point of application I want to give you is choose the good portion. <laughs> choose the good portion. And we can do that, choosing the good portion, in several, several ways. We can read the Bible daily. It's the most direct way of doing it. Sitting at Jesus' feet, in his word, daily. And not just reading the New Testament, but reading the Old. The Old Testament is a wealth, a wealth of glorious truth that we often neglect. There is no such thing as a New Testament Christian. There is only all Bible-believing Christians and those who choose to neglect over half the Bible. The, the, the Old Testament has a specific messianic undertone, a purpose. It's one whole story about Christ, the whole Bible is. And so every single thing in the Old Testament is meant to set up and to precede what the New Testament tells us. And so we should sit at Christ's feet in the Old Testament. And we should also sit at Christ's feet in the New Testament. We should read it as we always do and look to how Christ's work in person has been revealed what the gospel says, how it is applied to the epistles, and how to live for his glory. And so, in light of that, I want to ask three questions as well. What practical responsibilities, doing chores, things like that, 
do you shirk, do you just not do for personal pleasure, like naps and social media and things like that? Are these, second question, are these the same responsibilities that you focus on and get all worried about and anxious about instead of reading your Bible? These responsibilities, school, work, what have you, were not so important when you decided to do something else instead of them. So how did those responsibilities all become, all, all of a sudden become so important when it was viewed in light of reading your Bible? And if your personal pleasures are so much more important than these responsibilities, and these responsibilities are so much more important than reading the Bible, then what does that say about personal pleasures in your life? Where is your heart at? What do you value? For me, it was, for me it's been school for the past year. Um, for the past, actually, 20 years of my life. Um, 21 years, I guess. It's always been school and things like that. In this last year or so, I've, I've been reading this verse, and it's been my weekly prayer. Lord, let me choose the good portion today. And I have 18 papers due and 24 tests or whatever. I always try, if I can, if, I can, if the Lord allows me to turn and say, Lord, even though I have so many things going on, let me choose the good portion today, and let me not neglect reading your word for studying something. And so I would ask you today, no matter what you have done today, have you chosen the good portion today? Ask yourself that every single day. Go to him in prayer. Choose the good portion each and every day. Put it above your doorpost. Put it on your phone. Put it as a reminder. Ask people to ask you that question. Do it. It is so necessary. And in, re- in writing this message, I realized that read your Bible every day probably isn't very good encouragement because it just sounds like a list of things to do. Um, also, it could be pretty much the application to every single message known to man is read your Bible every day. And so I, I, in light of this heart value change that's going on in this passage, I wanted to ask you maybe a better question. And it's, do you love the Word of God? Do you have an affectionate passion for Christ that leads you to his word each day. And if you don't, and maybe you're like Martha, who is a believer, calls Jesus Christ Lord, but your heart is distracted with responsibilities, and that affectionate, passionate love you have for Christ now wanes and is now dull because you're so focused on all these other things. Know that your Savior comes to you with compassion. And if you go to him, as we said earlier today, that he will change your heart and he will give you a fire for him if you repent and turn to him in in faith. And perhaps you are sitting here today and you said, I've never had that affectionate love for Christ. In fact, I don't know Christ. I've been convicted today that I am an unbeliever still in his condemnation. I want you to know that this good portion is offered to you today. It is offered to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross who came and did the ultimate service of subjecting himself to human nature and to die on the cross for our sins. And he now lives in heaven 
at the right hand of God, eternally making intercession for us as our high priest. And so I offer to you today to turn in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and choose the good portion along with us today as we are here. And then finally, we can go to church as the other way that we can choose the good portion. Every single Sunday, every single Wednesday, we are open with services like these to offer sitting underneath Jesus' feet and listening to his word being taught. And so how much more should we value church and being in church and sitting under his feet and being with others and hearing the word from them in our community here at Grace? What would it look like if we valued church over vacations and over sports tournaments and over all the things that we so often say, well, I don't have to be at church this Sunday because I got this thing going on. I'm going to be out of town. Well, maybe while you're out of town, maybe sit under Jesus' feet. Sit at his feet with another body in the place that you're going to. Commune with those people there because it is the good portion to do so. It is the good portion that you are receiving. And then one last thing I want to say before we close in prayer is that if this passage is about true discipleship, sure, it's a lot of inward reflection, and it's saying, am I a true disciple of Christ? What, do, what does my life look like? But also, how we disciple others is strongly affected by this passage. If the good portion of sitting at Jesus' feet in his word every single day is that, is eternally valuable, is the one necessary thing, then when we disciple others, we're not giving them tips and tricks to be prosperous in life. We're not giving them political theology. We're not giving them things to to apologetically argue against someone else. Our first and necessary thing that we have to do in our discipleship of others in this church and abroad is to teach them to choose the good portion. We do not disciple others with psychology or behavior modification or cultural remedies, but we disciple people with the word of God so that it might change their souls, that they might look more like Christ. So, what shall we do? We should, as true disciples, sit at Jesus Christ's feet daily, forsaking the cares of the world and prizing and prioritizing him and his word above all all things. For that is the portion that lasts forever. This is the word of God from Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42, which I now commit to your further study and faithful obedience until Christ, whose fellowship is our portion forever, comes. And as the men come forward for communion, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and for your kindness to us in Christ. who came and died for our sins for us in love while we were still yet sinners. Father, I pray that each day we all would look to you as our good portion in your word, in prayer, and that we would view all other things as filthy rags compared to the glory and the value of Jesus Christ, who is our one necessary thing. 
Father, transform our hearts today and each day as we go forward to, to do this. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.